On this new episode, Joe was able to sit down with a true cryptocurrency OG. Jalik Jobanputra is a founding partner of Future Perfect Ventures, an early stage venture capital fund investing in decentralized technology launched in 2014. She discusses with Joe about the evolution of blockchain and how it is similar to every other early tech business. Things take time and soon it will be mainstream. They also discuss how the concept of blockchain will benefit many startups raising the capital they need. They are both looking forward to the day when everyone will have a digital wallet and why you should be too. Let's just get right down to business. The Joe Roberts Show. This, this is The Joe Roberts Show. The Joe Roberts Show. The Joe Roberts Show. Hello, Jalik. Welcome to the show. Let's get rolling by giving us a brief background about your investing experience and what led you into blockchain investing. Well, it's great to be here. Thanks for having me. Um, I started off um, on Wall Street in the, in the mid-90s, um, then ended up uh, working on the Netscape IPO in, in 95 and just got bitten by the internet bug, um, moved out to Silicon Valley in uh, 99 and have been a venture capitalist since. And about eight years ago, um, I decided that there were a bunch of gaps in the venture landscape. Um, and I, uh, just like I got really interested in the internet in, in 95, I got really interested in Bitcoin and its underlying blockchain technology in 2013 and decided to start an early stage venture fund around the thesis of, of decentralization and cryptocurrency and what I consider the next wave of, of computing after, after the internet. Did you feel that it was just more of the contrarian move to make, you know, go into blockchain or kind of at that time, you know, it was probably more frowned upon than it is today? Oh, yes. I, I, it's interesting to see, especially how, how many Valley investors, Silicon Valley investors are, you know, very interested in the sector now. But back in 2013 and 14, um, there's still this um, notion that centralized computing and, you know, companies like Google and Facebook, and, you know, they're still obviously going to be around for a long time, but the companies that were harvesting user data and advertising-based models were going to be um, kind of uh, in, indefeatable, right, in, in the future. And, and the concept of decentralized computing is this idea that you're empowering the end user, allowing them to be able to monetize their data, participate in the networks that they help create. And that was very contrary to the business models we saw emerge from the internet. And I think 2020 was just a, a pivotal, pivotal year uh, for this de decentralized compute model. Um, it's not only on the computing side, but human capital. You know, we, we're now living in a world that is being forced to, to be more distributed and decentralized and, and technology um, is, is there and it's going to be adopted because of this. So how did you guys initially start your thesis for your investments into the blockchain? So because I had seen, um, and I, I was at Intel Capital. So when I started my venture career, it was um, uh, at one of the, the companies that, or, or the company that really um, enabled computing and, and uh, personal computers. And, and so um, really, got to learn the semiconductor world as well as the internet. Um, and um, so I, I just looked at the different um, evolution of technology, right? And, and the, 
70s, the 60s and 70s, we had um, uh, the PCs and, and, um, and then companies like Microsoft, uh, you know, software, um, you know, business models that were created. And then in, in, in the 90s, we moved to this idea of connecting all these computers through, through the internet and, and, and then uh, storing data in clouds, um, you know, and, and then, um, so if I just look at, you know, what did you need to build uh, for all of that technology to take hold? So it wasn't just about the technology, but all the infrastructure. So, um, you know, we couldn't really watch uh, videos online um, in, in 1996 and 1997 because the, the um, broadband infrastructure, there just wasn't ability to move data through the connectivity that we had. And then that, um, you know, invested in companies that enable that. And so I view this blockchain technology the same way, that if you believe that there's going to be direct connectivity between people, what um, people, businesses, and computers, right? We, we have Amazon. I don't, I don't want to set off my Alexa, so I didn't want to say Alexa. Yeah. <laughs> but we'll see if she wakes up. <laughs> but, but we have all these connected devices, right? And, and they're going to be talking to each other and actually transacting with each other, um, you know, uh, in, in terms of information. So uh, I, I just started investing or thinking about all the different things, including security, including the ability to move the data uh, faster, enable transactions around the world, right? So we have a very global thesis that this doesn't work if it's only happening in one part of the world. Uh, so um, it, it was really to me, and, and I, if I look at you know, the, the first deck that I put together uh, for investors in, in 2013, it's really the same thesis, which is you know, the, the computing paradigm is, shift, is shifting to this decentralized world. And where are we? And, and we're just, as, our, as, as we keep adding funds as time goes on, we're just moving more and more towards that decentralization. And I'd say this is all happening you know, much quicker than anyone had even imagined. So, so we look, um, I say we're a very diversified fund within the blockchain space um, because it's like saying you had an internet fund, right? Um, there's so many different aspects of it to invest in. And, and I, I'm just so excited about, you know, the fact that we are at this point uh, where there is a lot of great talent entering the sector. And then you have the the people who kind of initiated, you know, the early uh, OGs of this sector that continue to be very engaged, right? Like, it, it's not that people have made their money and left, uh, which, you know, the speculators have, but but the people who believe in this technology are, are still building and, and very engaged. And, and so it's, it's an incredibly exciting time right now. So there's definitely a lot of things to invest in out there, but there's certain things that need to be built first before some of those other investments can kind of layer on, correct? Correct. And, and so <laughs> absolutely. And we saw this happen in 2017. Yep. And I, I viewed it very much uh, similar to, um, you know, 1999 internet, um, where uh, for, for those of us, uh, you know, the, those folks that were active uh, in, in, in the sector, that, you know, we remember pets.com. Uh, we remember companies like Cosmo, which is doing this uh, bike delivery of, you know, one item of toilet paper if you wanted it. Um, but, but, you know, we didn't have, um, for, for that delivery service, we didn't have mobile phones that were ubiquitous yet. Um, so 
it was very expensive and, and not really a feasible business model to, to have something. But, but we have that everywhere right now. It's just uh, 20 years later that's taken hold. So it is very much about timing. And, and that's where I think, you know, having seen these previous computing evolutions uh, that really formed the early days of, uh, and, and continues to, to inform the, the way we invest and in making sure that we're early and cutting edge, but, but not too early. And, and so in 2017, you know, there are a lot of ICOs and, you know, these coin offerings, but that was a lot of speculation, you know, before, um, before the technology was, was actually at, at the point where it needed to be. And then speculators got involved anyway, just like they did in, in the 1999 internet. Yeah. And, you know, I got involved in 2017 and, uh, you know, a little bit newer into tech, I didn't quite realize how long it actually takes for things to develop. So, you know, it seems like the crypto investors are now becoming adaptable to understanding that it's going to take a lot longer. You know, in 2017, 2018, there's always, it's going to happen next year. It's going to happen next year it's, or this year, right? And now I talk to people, I'm like, look, this is going to be like three to five years, right? And then once that's accomplished, then that's 10 years. And like, that's how it's going to look out 10 to 20 years. And I think people, like you're saying about the internet, 20, 30 years, the time will just pass. And so it's very interesting now to see the things develop now from the 2017 and what's still here, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. And, and we were really, we were lucky to, um, you know, going back to 2013 and, and <laughs> invest in, in some great entrepreneurs who, again, like resiliency is, is when you're investing at the early stage, resiliency is probably the, the single most uh, uh, important factor in, in an entrepreneur. And I, I, I view myself in that category too, of, of having this thesis um, when, you know, people, frankly, you know, I'd mentored previous mentors who had told me that I was throwing away my career uh, and track record by now getting involved in blockchain and crypto. And so you really have to be able to uh, drown out you know, the, the, the naysayers, uh, if you really believe in the technology. So, you know, we, we invested in companies like Blockstream, uh, Adam Back, who is the CEO, uh, cited in Satoshi's white paper. And they've been building out Bitcoin infrastructure, you know, since its, its initiation and, and are very active in the mining community. Blockchain, which is the largest crypto wallet in the world, and the first to offer a, a, a Bitcoin explorer of being able to look up transactions. And Bitpesa, AZA, which is now known as AZA. Um, uh, I was born in, in Nairobi and have spent a lot of time in the emerging markets. And they were the first um, or one of the first companies to look at using uh, blockchain technology for FX transactions to reduce the costs of, of money transfer in, in markets that uh, where the money transfer is very expensive because of all the corresponding banking systems. So those are all companies that we knew were essential part of, of the infrastructure and entrepreneurs that we felt were, you know, resilient and dedicated through the ups and downs. And more recently, uh, we've invested in companies like The Graph, which has had a, a really, really nice launch over the last few months. And, um, and this goes back to looking at infrastructure, they're offering the ability for developers to, to take in data from different blockchains and work with that data. And, and if you think about, you know, internet and analytics around e-commerce and being able to see, you know, how, uh, what a user somewhere will interact with an app somewhere else, you know, that's an essential part of kind of building new applications. And so they were the first team I saw that 
um, we're focused on that, what I call the middleware layer, right? So it's infrastructure middleware, which also is called layer two in, in crypto uh, speak. And, and then there's the application layer. Um, and what I'm really excited about, and any mentioned being involved since 2017, that makes you, you know, you've been in the space for a while, <laughs> right? Right. I, I mean, every day, I always say every day in crypto is like 10 years in anything. Especially though. when the market's going up 10 or 30% a day, right. you're like, whoa. Yeah, <laughs> no. right. So, uh, so yeah, I would say that, I mean, you've seen this too, where, where it's moving quickly and tech, the tech is moving quickly, the business models are at moving quickly. And, and part of it is because we now have the internet. So there is this connectivity and, and it's all open source code. So, you know, someone sitting in Rwanda can work on an app uh, using the code or, um, you know, introduce new, new features to that code. Um, and that is speeding up, I think, you know, uh, how quickly um, the, the applications are going to be developed in the sector. You're investing in these early stage companies. How do you, you know, what are some of the most of the important aspects of the deal? Is it more on the team? Is it the adoption and market fit? How do you look at them? Yeah, I, I, I've alluded to a few of these, but the team, you know, that, that resiliency, um, you know, I have uh, seen more companies kind of go, go under and, and they may have the greatest tech, the, the you know, be, be at the right place at the right time. However, their co-founder conflict is a big issue, um, as is um, that resiliency. Um, so many, every successful company I've ever been involved with has been on the verge of going under, like, you know, whether it's weeks or months or, you know, sometimes even days before their turning point. So it, it's that, um, you know, that mental resiliency um, that, that is so, so key. And beyond that, yeah, I mean, I mentioned you can't be too early, right? And so you have to be aware that, you know, you can believe in the technology and, you know, like I 100% believe in a decentralized world. I come from the emerging markets. I'm an immigrant. I, I understand how many people are underserved in this world, but we're not going to get there overnight. And I think, you know, it works on both sides. Entrepreneurs need to make sure they find investors that also have the patience. And then um, as an investor, I, I look at entrepreneurs who are, who are realistic about the market adoption, you know, and the average person isn't really interested in all these great features. Like they want to make their lives better because they have other things to do with their time. And so that um, is, is is something I really, you know, make sure that especially if an entrepreneur is targeting a, more of a consumer facing uh, application, or even if it's infrastructure, understanding that um, that consumer adoption, market adoption piece takes time. And, you know, you mentioned that too, uh, when we were just talking a few minutes ago. So what do you think there's, a, you know, for anybody who's listening, who may want to invest in a fund or looking to invest in companies directly, what do you think are some of the key points for due diligence that, you know, kind of give you the edge or give people the edge when there's thousands of new startups being pitched daily and it can be very overwhelming. How do you come to, you know, finding the best team, the best market fit? So I think being thesis driven is, is very important. Look, there, there's some great funds out there that say that they're founder first and they you know, invest in just the human talent. And I, you know, I think there are great funds out there that are successful doing that. I believe in this sector, uh, you have to be 
thesis driven <laughs> because things move so quickly and it's that knowledge base um, and that connectivity like if you look at our portfolio you know we have connectivity across the spectrum we have uh, built great relationships with founders um, that also help any new entrepreneurs that come into the portfolio through that that connection you know i'm deeply passionate about this space this is what i i live and breathe and the fact that i i see a lot read a lot of what's out there uh, really helps helps the entrepreneur. That being said, I think entrepreneurs at the early stage should get a mix of, of investors, but I don't think they should take any money that they don't think is going to add value beyond just the money um, uh, because, um, and, and, and crypto is certainly moving at, I mean, part of the thesis of crypto, right, is that you're uh, democratizing access uh, to finance. And, and so, yeah, I, I want to disrupt venture capital, you know, and, and that's always been my goal. I mean, I, you know, I, I think the industry has been ripe for disruption for many, many years, which is ironic because, you know, they're supposed to be investing in disruption. But, you know, if you just look at the lack of diversity, the lack of global uh, perspective uh, until very recently, inability to see like things like new crypto business models, I, I think, and what we've seen would certainly uh, happen uh, with GameStop. I, I think we're in a very interesting point in time where we can no longer rely or, or say that intermediate all intermediaries serve a purpose. And the whole concept of, of Bitcoin and blockchain technology is to uh, do away with that intermediation. And yeah, I, I you know I think I need to add value as an intermediary, um, as as a you know, and and realize that I'm working towards my own disruption. But then, as a money manager, right, as anyone who's managing uh, their own funds or other people's funds, um, I think it allows like the the potential liquidity upside of, of being able to manage a portfolio in very different ways is is really exciting. And that's where my wall street background also comes into play uh, where this is the first time i'm really seeing tech and and finance so silicon valley and wall street my two you know those two places the only places i've really known in my career really you know converge in, in a massive way so how do you kind of see that playing out because right now i think we're kind of seeing the vcs you know doing a certain part or early allocation and then we're doing some form of a token sale right we're kind of have a hybrid going right now what is your thought on how that looks maybe three to five years out? Yeah, I, I think, look, I, I do think there's a role for venture. I don't think all that <laughs> should exist, um, but but certainly, you know, I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't be running a fund if I didn't think that there was some value, um, you know, it would bring, because there, there are a lot of other things to do in this world, frankly. But, but I do think entrepreneurs benefit from having some patient or, uh, investors early on who also, who can help them, um, you know, whether it's recruiting, whether it's introductions from a business development standpoint, um, and, and those are, you know, two things that I spend a lot of my days doing for the portfolio. And I do think there's a role in that. But I do think this ability to kind of go public, issue a token, have engaged users involved and, you know, being able to monetize their involvement. I think it's just, it's, it's good all around. It's, it's good for, you know, may, maybe a company won't have to raise 20 million or 100 million. Maybe they'll only have to raise 
two to five million, um, you know, to, to get off the ground. And then they go public or issue a token where the rest of their funding, um, you know, comes from uh, the, this kind of circular economy. And, and I think <laughs> that would be, I think that would be a beautiful thing. And, but I do see, and that's why, you know, a lot of um, funds are going to later stage investing, frankly, I'm more excited than ever about the early stage investing and, and our fund thesis around that because I think companies aren't going to have to go for that like larger later unless you're Robin Hood and you know you find yourself in a situation and you need to raise you know three billion dollars in a week. But I think that model is gonna go away down the road. In 2017, if I remember correctly, we usually seen about 60 to 80 percent of the circulating supply released up front. Now it appears it's eight to twenty percent being released with, I guess, the ability to use, you know, use those funds later on, kind of what is your opinion of these two different models we're seeing? Because you know, is that allowing the price to move up faster these days? Or what is your opinion? Well, certain, I mean, it, it, it does move up the price because, you know, I, I think what we're seeing is there's this pent up demand, but, but I, I don't think it's just purely about price or, or I, I think it's, it's um, and we saw this happen and, and we've seen it increasingly happen over the last few years with the search for yield, you know, people are looking for alternative, I mean, the alternative space and you know, we're about to launch our next fund and the interest level in that is, has just been, you know, beyond what we saw previously. I mean, partly because of crypto, but I think there's also an interest in alternatives. And, and the SPACs is also an example of that, right? Where smaller, you know, cap, companies are able to, you know, go public and there is investor appetite and demand because they're looking for yield and they're looking to diversify, you know, their option and not, you know, their ability to look at different investments. I should say options only, but I think it's a combination of the two. I think we're seeing that, you know, the, these companies are, uh, a lot of them are further along in, in terms of their development when they are issuing the token and they're allowing, you know, enough uh, stability for, for future token offerings. And, and I think that's, I actually think that's a smart thing. I mean, you know, a lot of VCs want as much ownership as possible. We certainly like to have ownership, but I, I think with, with tokens, I think that's, that's, a, you need to look at it a different way and not only look at the kind of initial ownership, but look at how much, you know, how much opportunity there is by having, and I think in terms of float, right, having a wider investor base that's more engaged uh, with, uh, with, with the actual product. So what, what percentage of your portfolio over the last few years has been tokens and how is that going to look differently in the next few years? <laughs> yeah, so, um, you know, I was very vocal about having question marks around the, the ICOs that were being issued in 2017. We did, uh, through some sidecars, participate and like DOT um, is a team that I know really well, Polkadot, um, and I was a big believer in the way they were going about their technology build out and, and planned issuance. Um, and, and so that was one that we did participate in. But, but for the most part, um, so the first fund uh, didn't have, I mean, uh, didn't have any token investments. The second fund, it was about 20% of, of the fund. And it includes things like Bitcoin and ETH, as well as some of the uh, smaller token. I mean, I mentioned the graph uh, we invested before they launched. 
Um, and then the third fund, we, we're expecting that number to go to at least 30%, probably higher, um, you know, as, as uh, the fund evolves. So do you see any regulatory hurdles right now with the tokens? Or well, what, I, <laughs> what's your opinion on it or kind of where, where do we see maybe some of the obstacles the industry faces over the next year or so? Well, I think we've had a lot more clarity over the, yeah. since 2017. And, and that was really the, the, the biggest problem. I, one of, I mean, some of it was, you know, I just felt like there wasn't a lot of fair affair with, with some of these teams. They just saw it being an opportunistic time to raise money. But I just didn't think we had regulatory clarity and as a fiduciary to L, my LPs, I couldn't, you know, justify having exposure there um, until we had more regulatory clarity. And that was a time when, you know, even the lawyers are trying to figure it out, not only the SEC and people, you know, say, oh, well, the SEC is so slow, but like lawyers who spent all their time were also trying to, I mean, you know, um, all bouncing things off of each other and, and, and fund managers like myself that were early. And so, um, you know, there's just a lot of, um, I mean, this was all so new. And, and so I think, you know, we, we've come a long way from that time. Now we're getting into, you know, decentralized finance and DeFi. And, and that brings up a lot of other, um, you know, regulatory questions, which, you know, certainly, you know, U.S. regulators are, are thinking through it. Um, but there is a, uh, I think there's now an understanding that none of this is, this is not going away. And, right, and, right. Um, and so the regulators have to engage in, and uh, hopefully will engage in, in a way that does protect investors from bad actors. I'm, I'm a believer in doing that, but also allows innovation uh, to, to flourish and, and not, um, you know, we saw it in New York where the bit license kind of got ahead of itself. A lot of companies left New York because they just felt like there wasn't enough clarity yet and, uh, and, and there had been no rulings around it. So they didn't want to take the risk uh, of being regulated under the bit license. So I think jurisdictions have learned from that. And it's so interesting. I, you know, it, it's, inbound hedge fund friend calls, inbound LP calls, and inbound regulator calls uh, that to me signify, you know, how, whether this is, you know, this is a, um, a market that's going to be around. And I've gotten more and more regulator calls um, in a good way, not, you know, not in terms of, you know, you're in trouble, but we want to learn more about the technology. Um, I still feel from a regulatory and maybe a tax perspective that some of the, one of the first conversations typically, where are we going to domicile the project, right? It's typically not the U.S. So, you know, how do you see that maybe changing or do you not, you know, will not change? Well, I think early days, a lot of entrepreneurs have been careful uh, about um, domiciling in, in, in the U.S. Uh, because of the regulations. And I think it goes, again, I, I think the U.S. is going to be an important market, right, um, in, in terms of the investor base, <laughs> And the stability of the investor base, and, and especially when you talk about large, large pools of capital. So most of the entrepreneurs I, I talk to are interested, if they're not in the U.S., uh, coming to the U.S. at some point and accessing the U.S. market. Um, I think for the companies that do choose to domicile here, I, you know, and if they are regulated, that builds a moat. I mean, that's one of the reasons I, I've you know, not minded investing in fintech when a lot of investors stay away, they say, you know, the, 
the regulation is scary, but the regulation, um, if you do things the right way, can also create a moat for you know other outside entrants coming in. So I, I look at it, you know, both ways. Um, I do think a lot of entrepreneurs want to innovate early days outside outside of the US because they kind of want to see what their user base is, how the technology plays out. And that's fine. I mean, we, you know, our thesis again was, was that this is the next wave of tech is going to be global and borderless. And that was something, you know, which was not a common, common outlook back in 2013 amongst VCs. It was always, you know, in our own backyard. New York, I, I was based in New York the last 17 years. A lot of Silicon Valley VCs only started coming to New York in the last, you know, five to eight years. So, so, um, so we have kind of worked with regulators around the world. We uh, invest across the world and, and we just want to make sure that we're investing in uh, companies and entrepreneurs who, who believe in protecting, you know, individual investors and understand why regulations exist, um, you know, at the right time, will engage with, with regulators if necessary. Some of the guys I spoke to uh, in some of the projects, you know, what we've seen over the last, you know, over the years is that if we look at maybe let's say Binance or, you know, some of these guys that kind of sp sprout up overseas. I mean, the, the, the ability for them to get the profitability and be able to self-sustain mm -hmm. without running out of capital is just so much more efficient than if you maybe look at, I don't want to compare necessarily, but let's say Gemini or Coinbase, where maybe they're doing their thing by the book, but it's just taking them a lot longer. And there, yeah, yeah, <laughs> and you know, there, there, there's something to be said for that, but there's also something to be, I mean, I, you know, I think both models and, and that's the beauty of, of what we're seeing playing yep. out, both models have a role. And I, I would say, you know, Coinbase and, and Gemini, um, you know, also benefit from what they're seeing, you know, Binance do. I mean, this is such a large market. Again, if you believe that this is on the scale of the internet or, or you know, of Wall Street, right? And, and I mean, there's plenty, um, plenty of business to go around and plenty of new products to be created out of this technology, plenty of existing, and I'm talking about financial products to uh, existing financial products to move to this technology, new products. So, uh, you know, yeah, that, that's true, but, but we're also in, in this for the longer term. I mean, I, I tell LPs, like you should, if you believe in this sector, you should have a diversified group of funds with different strategies that you're investing in because, um, you know, that there's something to be said for the, the algorithmic trading, you know, uh, platforms out there. There's something to be said for funds like ours that look at long-term, you know, really long-term value creation, but, but you know, offer that, that alpha, uh, you know, I'd say more stable alpha over, over time. So, yeah, I, I think, you know, I mean, that, that's great. I mean, uh, but then you have companies like, you know, BitMEX <laughs> that <laughs> generated a lot of cash, but did it, did it in a, in a questionable way. Correct. So what do you think are the, uh, the biggest misconceptions right now about Bitcoin or tokens themselves? Well, I, you know, when I, when I get outside of the crypto, crypto bubble, and luckily that crypto bubble is getting bigger and bigger, and I say luckily in, in terms of size, that more people are getting engaged <laughs> and involved in this sector. But, uh, you know, there's still this, this view that it's highly risky, you know, highly volatile. And, you know, it is, but then if you compare it to some of, you know, individual stocks and, and you know, what happened over the last year, 
I mean, Bitcoin looked boring for a little while, <laughs> for most of 20, you know, until we got to it more towards the end of the year. And, and, and so I think there's still a, a views and, and also views that it's going to be kind of regulated out of existence. And, and certainly, I mean, if there have been some bigger names who have talked about that, but, you know, my view has been, you're going to have an uproar <laughs> if, if you're taking away, you know, the ability ability for, for individuals to have some financial sovereignty, right? Um, when the technology is there and, and people have already gotten a taste of what that's like. Now, there could be a risk that, you know, the taxation increases to the point where, you know, or what India did, which is like shut off, you know, this is three years ago, you know, shut off uh, banking access. Uh, to crypto startups, which and basically shut down that sector for three years, but then the Supreme Court overruled that last year. So I, I think um, you know people still view it as this you know money launderer. You know they're, they're, uh, money launderer is highly risky, but but that's changing more more and more. And and I don't expect most people to understand our perspective, uh, our funds perspective of that this is the next internet. You know, I finally seen um, you know some some folks tweet about oh this is thirty trillion dollars. Our first deck had that this is ten x the internet at least, and it was back then it was two trillion for you know the major internet companies, and I had and I got laughed out of rooms um, with LPs, with institutional LPs. And now we have some of the biggest names out of the Valley saying, you know, 30 trillion is, is conservative. So, but I, I, I still don't think most people grasp the, the full potential of, of the underlying technology. Well, a little bit more into DeFi because it's kind of the hot topic right now in the market, at least the last few months. Um, where do you see the best use cases for it right now in the next, you know, within the next three to five years? Oh gosh, three to five. I mean, we're, if you do the three times, you know, 10, 30 to 50. Within that, within the next three years, what, you know, what do you see actually developing into something, you know, you know, more widely used, maybe not like globally, but, you know, more widely used by the community that's actually stable? Well, look, I, I think that any, you know, we've seen a lot of institutional investors, money managers express an interest in Bitcoin, and I'm starting to see them express an interest in ETH. And, okay. and you know, I think, as you know, it can be a slippery slope or that rabbit hole that once you start to open up your mind to the possibilities and, 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 and you know, DeFi is just the next stage of, okay, you're giving people financial, you know, sovereignty through or this kind of independent, I wouldn't even say financial sovereignty through, through Bitcoin, but, but an asset that's independent of government, you know, um, manipulation, um, you know, they're, you can argue with that, right? But um, then you start to think about, well, what if I could offer other products, um, you know, synthetics, uh, you know, and, and turn a stock into any stock into collateral and, and, and lending is for certainly the first use case. And we see it in fintech, you know, I've been investing in fintech since 99 and lending is always like the first application of kind of any new technology. Uh, we saw it with the peer-to-peer -peer lending, um, like Lending Club. And, and so uh, we'll see that, but then I think we'll also see new types of products being created um, for, you know, and I, I've viewed blockchain technology as, as creating all these micro marketplaces, 
around, you know, around the world. It could be data micro marketplaces and, and, and with DeFi, I think about um, financial product micro marketplaces. So somebody wants to create, you know, a synthetic or a derivative that, that speaks to a certain risk, it becomes programmable. What I think we need is better user interfaces as well as, you know, I believe, I believe that everyone should be able to invest in what they want to, but I also think that risks need to be disclosed. I mean, that's what I would like to see, you know, this, this free market, micro marketplaces of different financial products. However, risk disclosure by the, the, the people that are creating these products. Um, and, and part of that could be credentialing, like, you know, maybe you don't know who's issuing that particular product, but, but you now through another crypto mechanism, there are people who will vouch who are also, you know, have some credibility. You know, that's a concept we've invested in out of the fund for freelancers uh, through a company called Brain Trust. Um, uh, we were one of their first investors, but they're creating this, this credentialing system for freelancers. Um, uh, it's kind of like Bitcoin, right? I ver if my node verifies a Bitcoin transaction, I receive some Bitcoin. And so the system is incentivized to grow the value and, and like stay honest. You can apply that to different financial products. You can apply, I mean, we, we, we're, we've invested in brain trust to, to you know, see how it works around uh, human talent and human capital. You know, I'm always thinking way ahead, <laughs> but I am actually, you know, this may actually even happen sooner than, than three years, given how quickly the pace is moving. But what we're particularly interested in is, you know, if you believe in the sector and believe in transparency and access, then, then you want to have these systems that allow people to assess true risk. And I don't think we have that in the DeFi market quite yet. No, no, not yet. I mean, and most people all use uh, a service or whatever based on trust, right? Um, you know, and, and so how do you kind of see that play out with DAOs? And, you know, how can people build trust? Or do you think that is the future? Um, you know, there, there's always a lot of people who, who and, and really the world operates on this is, is um, uh, by taking advantage of, of people, right? And I, I, I don't, know whether this sector is, I, I don't think the purists and, you know, the, the OGs that I know, we, we didn't get involved to take advantage of people. We, we got involved to create a better system that's more equitable. Um, and, and I think there's money to be made by doing that, by the way, though. I'm not running a charity. I, I think that this is the future. I, I think, look, people are, are going to, you know, they're going to be people who try to game the system to try to take advantage of folks. But, and I, I see the people who suffer the most are the people that don't have the time to do the research, you know, and they shouldn't have to, right? We, we, we should be able to create transparency and technology that allows anyone to make it an investment decision, um, uh, you know, and have reliable information for that. And, and so, and I think that's what the blockchain can, you know, should be about um, and, and, and blockchain tech. So um, look, I think we're always going to have, 
you know, the, the folks that don't care about that, who don't care about the, who, who, who thrive on a lack of transparency. I mean, that's how intermediate, that's how hedge funds operate, <laughs> right? I mean, and then look what, you know, as, as information has become more accessible, the hedge funds have, have found it challenging to create the returns that are expected out of them because of the efficiency of information flow. So I believe that we will create the greatest, truest meritocracy when this technology becomes ubiquitous and lives up to its potential. And we'll see who's really, you know, who's really good at what they do versus hoarding information, thriving on a lack of transparency. When it comes to all the DeFi, do you believe that the use case will be uh, split kind of amongst uh, emerging markets? First, maybe the Western world because of regulatory hurdles, like the user base? Yeah, I, I mean, I, I do think that, um, I mean, just like we've seen with the CFI you know, space, um, uh, there's going to be very different regulatory reactions to DeFi. Uh, we're, we're seeing it in, in the companies that, you know, we, we invest in, you know, where a lot of them are being started outside of the U.S. just because uh, there, there's a worry about, you know, a heavy-handed approach um, uh, to to some of this technology. So, you know, that's where I think we have, you know, we, we're very well positioned um, by, by you know, having built these networks, um, I'd say over the last 20 plus years, um, uh, 25 years of my career where, you know, I can pick up the phone and, and call somebody in India or Kenya or Nigeria or Brazil or Mexico or the Philippines and, and know what the current regulatory um, uh, landscape uh, propensity is. And then, um, and the nice thing about the, the innovators and the creators, they, they um, you know, they, they know who's real. The, the ones that are real know who's real <laughs> and, 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 and who will, um, you know, provide uh, the right type of support to them. So it's, it's a very symbiotic relationship and, and, uh, you know, DeFi, I think allows, um, al allows innovation at a quicker, quicker pace because you, you just, you know, you have the user feedback right away yeah. <laughs> in, in a very global sense. And, and, and so it, it's exciting as an investor to be able to get that real-time feedback that, you know, used to take many months or sometimes years to generate. I feel like whenever Bitcoin's, you know, we'll call it in a bull trend or the hype is high, there's always a jurisdiction that wants to put out some press release saying that they want to ban Bitcoin or something. And I know India hits the news every once in a while too. So kind of what is your take on all that? Yeah, I responded to someone's tweet yesterday saying, yeah, this is like every 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 two three years, you know, pretty much to to the day you can expect the Indian government to, to do that. Um, and I, I mean, I remember when you know China banned it and, yeah. and they just bought themselves some some time to figure out what their strategy was going to be around this. Um, uh, you know, whether it's a central bank digital currency and India has been talking about a digital rupee for a while like india is known for its capital controls right um they they did de demonetization um they have a very heavy-handed central central bank uh so it's not a surprise they and i i remember talking to the central bank um governor of um of kenya many many years ago maybe in 2015 or 16 and we were already investors in what was then bitpesa now aza and you know, I, I just said to him, like, why, you know, why this like 
really heavy handed reaction when you guys were, you know, the first country to like pioneer digital money, digital payments through M-Pesa. And yes, that's very centralized, but, but you get how technology can be transformative. And, you know, his perspective was an interesting one where, you know, he said, we're just new to being accepted in the financial, you know, the global monetary system. And we can't afford any, any misstep. And, um, you know, I think India is very much like, if, it, you know, it's been growing, um, you know, everyone's focused on China. I mean, India has a population, has the entrepreneurial culture, um, you know, a, a legal system, although very bureaucratic, um, uh, th there's a lot that India has that that's really, you know, the future, but, you know, I, I think they realize that and also in, in some ways want to want to control that um, the government wants to control that. But I do think, you know, we've moved beyond the point where, well, they can ban it, right? They, they can absolutely ban it. But uh, we found in other jurisdictions like China, people figure out a way to get access to it because once people experience it, understand what the government's trying to take away from them. They may not have a choice to move. You know, the average person doesn't always have that choice, especially now, but at some point it's going to come back and, and hurt the system. And, and so, you know, I think it would be a very big mistake for them to do it. I, uh, you know, they've already tried, um, the Supreme Court overturned it. I think they're trying to buy time, um, you know, for this digital rupee um, and, you know, want to kind of spook, spook the, the more of the, um, the more decentralized uh, crypto community. I know the, the question comes up less than it did a couple of years ago about like, you know, what happens if Bitcoin gets shut down? So based on what you're saying, you're kind of think that we're kind of past the hurdle, you know, mostly through, through most of the jurisdictions. Yeah. I mean, you know, there are other ways to do it through like taxation, right? There, there's um, other policies that can be implemented short of just this out, outright ban of, you know, accessing digital wallets and, and things. So, you know, we are going to see more and more regulation. I, I think you have, we're, we think in a very macro sense, um, you know, when, when I'm investing, it's countries are going to need money, right? I mean, uh, the, the, the stimulus, and, and, and just the amount uh, of rescue uh, packages that have had to go out, um, you know, um, in the US states, all over cities are, are talking about raising taxes, right? So if there's an opportunity to generate some of that tax income from a fast growing technology, they, they will probably try to do that. But I, but I do know that there's so much innovation in the space. It's like kind of, you know, and we've seen it with like game, I mean, GameStop again is an example of this, right? You can't, when, when you're, when everyone's so connected and, and people are just trying to live a better life and create a better life for themselves, if their own governments are trying to stop that, um, there's, there are now ways to, uh, you know, to go against the system. And we, we've seen it in the U.S. over what happened in January. Um, you know, so we're, we're seeing it everywhere. So I'm not going to say the governments are going to, you know, uh, be, be open to giving up financial control. And this is certainly a threat to them. But I do think uh, people have seen that they have a voice 
too. And, and certainly this crypto community keeps growing, uh, you know, on an hourly basis globally. <laughs> um, and, and so it's going to be very, very interesting to see how the governments react to that, because I, I don't think they can take a heavy handed approach. I think a lot of people, or let's say the majority of people here in the U.S. are so accustomed to everything within our borders, right? And you seem to be plugged in more across the world. What are some other things that investors can, you know, think about as a space evolves that may be happening more in the emerging markets and we don't realize here. And that's why we might not think it's a good idea, but it is a great idea over there. Yeah. So, um, you know, bank accounts, uh, we, we're used to credit cards, bank accounts. Um, if you just look at the financial system, most of the world doesn't have these financial systems. So again, going back to DeFi and lending, um, even setting up internet infrastructure for peer-to-peer -peer lending may not make sense anymore in a lot of these markets where you know people could go buy some crypto you know collateralize it was i mean i i think and I, i've been saying this since we started the fund the most interesting business models are going to emerge from these markets that don't have legacy infrastructure in place and finance is is i'd say number one in in terms of um uh disruption in the US, but they're starting from almost nothing in, in these other markets. And, and you just have to look at M-PESA. And I mean, M-PESA and what happened in Kenya around digital payments is what made me completely sold on Bitcoin the first time I took a look at it. Um, you know, in my mind, it was inevitable that this was gonna take off around the world um, and, and probably more in emerging markets. So, so I, I would say anything around banking services and DeFi, there's way more, um, you know, way more potential. I think, that, uh, you know, there's regulatory arbitrage and that, you know, we, they don't have the, the regulate. Now you can say they can come very heavy handed on some of it, but, but they also, uh, some of them have blank slate. And I'm thinking more about places in Africa, blank slates around um, some of the regulation. Um, this can, I'm very interested in the connectivity between central bank digital currencies, um, digitizing fiat, and how that's going to interact with other you know, crypto uh, mechanisms. And so, you know, I, I mean, I can tell you like the things I'm interested in seeing, which is, you know, um, and everyone having a digital wallet that has, you know, maybe like utility cryptos, uh, identity and different kind of forms of identity with zero knowledge proof. So you're not giving up all your information. You're just, you know, if I could take out a loan deciding I only want to give out my age, Right. Um, and, and I'll take a higher rate if, if that's all I want to do. You know, I, I want to be able to do that. Um, and, and so that's where the new products and, and like these, these emerging markets don't have insurance products. So imagine if you could start experimenting with different types of micro insurance related, you know, about putting it on a blockchain um, with, with crypto. And so, so those are, um, you know, that. And I, I also wrote a blog post, I think in 2013 about when it was called when third is first. And it was about things like telemedicine. I think I referred to Bitcoin and that too, but, but certainly um, mobile payments and how we were going to increasingly see innovations from the emerging markets come to the US. And, and we've seen that during this pandemic. I mean, just looking at telehealth, right? Um, I mean, I was investing in telehealth in Africa and India you know, in, in 2009. Oh, that's interesting. <laughs> so, um, 
so so I, I, I think um, just uh, the way I look at it is looking at what doesn't exist in, in these markets and, and what can be built from the ground up. And I'm going to go back to when I was a, a telecom and tech banker in the mid-90s. Um, and I was in New York and London. And, and so I was doing cable M&A in the US and they were all trying to merge to get more efficient. And then in the UK, they already had interactive television. And, and um, those trials never took off in the US. And it was because they didn't have the legacy infrastructure that they had newer infrastructure to actually be able to build these broadband pipes and, and experience. So, so um, you know, I, I think the emerging market now, I think the governments need to get out of their way. And India is a prime example of that, um, where, um, you know, it, uh, it, they, they have the potential to be leaders, but, but they need to make sure they don't over-regulate sector. Is that why th do you think that's uh, one of the key points today in having a global portfolio is that you have allocation to all the different baskets, basically, of innovation? Yeah, I, I you know, I, I think um, because, I, you know, I mentioned this is open source technology. Uh, I mean, brilliant entrepreneurs everywhere. I've, I've been a strong believer that, um, you know, uh, people, people get to where they are because of their birth lottery, right? Um, it doesn't, me, you know, if someone doesn't have money or if they don't know how to code, um, uh, it's not because they're not capable uh, of, of doing that. They just didn't have the opportunities or, and, and access to, you know, real estate. And, and, you know, I mean, that's why people in India bought so much gold, right? That was their store of, of wealth because they didn't have an ability to invest in anything else. That's why they kept cash underneath their mattress. It's not because they don't understand the concept of, compounded interest, you know, most of them would get that quicker than a lot of other people, uh, you know, in, in the US, but, but it's, it's that opportunity. Now that opportunities open up. Um, and I mean, I get, I get emails from, or uh, from like 12 year olds uh, from Afghanistan <laughs> who are asking me about crypto. So, you know, I, I think that, um, uh, I, I, I think, you know, making sure you're keeping an open mind that you also know the regulators, but you also kind of understand what's happening on the ground. Um, I mean, that's our secret sauce. And I think that there, there aren't a whole lot of other venture early stage funds that, that have that in their DNA. The, the, you know, that's why I started Future Perfect Ventures. So, um, so yeah, I, I mean, I think it, it is, uh, it is an important ingredient to, to our success. So when the 12 year old emails you or, you know, we're getting phone calls, should you buy something from your friends? What, where's the best place to direct them to these days? What do you usually do? <laughs> oh my goodness. Um, so yeah, I always say, don't believe everything you read. <laughs> so, so in terms of like, you know, buying crypto, like I think the best, and, and a lot of, so going back to misconceptions, like a lot of people still think you have to buy a whole Bitcoin. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I don't, I, I know a lot of, you know, finance, Wall Street folks who's, who still think that, you know, just take aside 10, 15, $20, whatever you want to start off with, right? Uh, whatever you're comfortable with, start interacting, um, you know, with, with an app. I mean, you have Coinbase, you have blockchain, you have Voyager, you have lots of different options uh, and, and just start. And then 
you know, just start seeing uh, how, like reading news about it. And, and like, you know, I don't think you can believe everything. I mean, this is unbiased, but I do think it like investing in funds is an important diversification strategy in the sector, because there is a lot of information flow that's just wrong. Um, and, and even coming from some of the larger, you know, Wall Street entities, they, they are just not you know, on the ground enough to know what's really happening. So I would say, um, you know, don't, and, and I say this with the stock market, you know, don't panic, you know, um, <laughs> you know, if, if it goes down, like don't, don't sell right away. If it's going up, um, you know, sure you can buy, but, but know that there's momentum and a lot of other people are thinking the same way. So I, I would say be patient with it too. Um, I think the most successful investors in Bitcoin have been the ones who bought some and forgot about it. <laughs> yeah. Not, and not the ones that lost their, <laughs> lost their key, you know, right? Instead of like panicking and when everybody said it was dead in 2007, you know, in 2018, um, you know, and, and it is also new. So the press doesn't know what's going on. And, and I'd say the 99% of the fund manager, okay, 95% of the fund managers in the space don't really, they haven't been in it long enough to really, you know, um, unless they're like these algorithmic traders, they haven't been there long enough to really understand like the history, uh, the dynamics, the human element of, of the technology. So, um, so yeah, I'd say start small. Uh, unless you have a lot of extra cash that, you know, you're willing to risk. And always start small listeners because you always lose in the beginning. <laughs> yeah. I wouldn't say always lose, but you I make the mistakes. Say, like, I should have put my whole net worth into it yeah. when, I, you know, it was 300. But, yeah, yeah. but you know, um, there was a bigger chance back then that it could go to zero. Yeah. And, and so, you know, you don't be too hard on yourself either. Yeah. So we always leave off with uh, a final question. And what is the biggest thing you have implemented in your life that has increased your net worth? Oh, my goodness. I mean, it's really starting my fund. <laughs> Believing in myself. Uh, I started it um, solo. Uh, and, uh, you know, at a time when, you know, most people thought I, I was nuts, I, I put, you know, a fair amount of my retirement savings into it, um, because it was so hard to raise money in the early days. And, you know, the way I look at net worth is it's, it's also what keeps you going. Right. Um, and uh, because there are a lot of people who dwindle away their net worth after they get it because they're no longer engaged. Um, and what I feel really fortunate about with what I do is, you know, I'm confident it'll keep increasing because I, I keep, you know, I keep myself very engaged. I'm so excited about this sector, but I have a lot of my own skin in the game. So I'm also not going to blow it in a, in a high, in a way that doesn't make sense from a risk reward perspective. No, that's great. That's great. Um, so if, if anybody wants to get a hold of you, what is the best way or they want to talk to you about your fund? Yeah. So I'm, um, at Jalik at fpv.vc. That's my first name. Uh, we also have IR at fpv.vc. I'm on LinkedIn. Um, under my, my, my name is a pretty easy one to find, uh, even if you type in my first name. And um, also on Twitter at Jalik, J-A-L-A-K. Well, Jalik, thank you for coming on today. I had a great conversation and maybe we'll get to do this again some point in the future. Yeah, I'd love to do that. Thanks so much. Don't forget to subscribe to the show on iTunes and leave a rating and a review. We'll see you on our next episode. Thanks for listening to The Joe Roberts Show. Take these tips and insights that you can use to help grow your own personal wealth and share them with a friend that could also benefit. Don't miss a single episode or updates. 
subscribe to our email list at joerobert.com. And as always, keep pushing yourself towards a more impactful life. The Joe Robert Show. The Joe Robert Show. The Joe Robert Show.